today we're excited to have Ms. Lauren David. Ms. Lauren David is a registered nurse and internal board certified lactation consultant with Opelousa's General Health System. She has been active in women's service here in St. Landry Parish for the last 17 years. She began her career right out of nursing school at Doctors Hospital in Labor and Delivery, Nursery, and Postpartum. She then transitioned to work with public health with the WIC and immunization program in Sunset for seven years. While working for WIC, she was inspired to breastfeed her own children and help other new moms to breastfeed also. In 2011, Lauren certified as an IBCLC and became an officer for the Acadiana Breastfeeding Coalition. In July of 2012, she was hired as the first ever lactation consultant of Opelousa's General Health System to lead the hospital's participation in friendly designation, uh, participation in the breast best fed beginning collaboration, achieving baby-friendly designation in 2015. As a mom of three best breastfed children, with a passion for seeing other mothers succeed, Lauren continues to be actively involved with the Acadiana Breastfeeding Coalition as the chair of the board, as well as serving as Louisiana Breastfeeding Coalition Steering Committee, advocating for mothers and all throughout Acadiana and the state. In her spare time, Lauren assists families with breastfeeding and wellness through essential oil with her home visiting private practice, Drops of Hope Lactation and Wellness Consulting. Joining Lauren David is Miss Amy Rosette. Miss Amy Rosette is a registered nurse at Opelousa's General Health System. She is the mother of two lovely children and has been a nurse for several years. And we thank both of those ladies for joining us today. And we turn the call over to Amy and Lauren from Opelousa's General Health Systems. You are both muted, so you'll have to dial star six to unmute yourself. Thank you, Shonda, for that uh, introduction. Hi, guys. This is Lauren David. Um, Amy, do you want to say hi? Good morning, everyone. If anyone has ever been a patient of our unit here at Opelousa's General, you probably recognize Amy. She is um, she's been here for a long time, and she, we can't we can't make this unit run without her. She is definitely invaluable to us, um, and you probably recognize her voice. She has a very distinctive voice, and we all love her so very very much. And I'm so um, honored to have her working with me on our breastfeeding task force, and she also helps us out with prenatal classes. Um, and that's kind of why we're here today. Um, so Shonda told me that a lot of you here on the call um, are grandmothers or grandparents and have daughters and daughters-in-law, um, maybe nieces, other family members who are having babies. And things have changed a lot. And I know there's a lot of crazy rumors that fly around about all the new changes that we've been making. Um, we've actually been working on a lot of these changes since uh, 2012, so for the last eight years. Um, it's amazing to see what's changed here and um, how well our moms and babies are doing now uh, with these new changes. Um, 
So I just wanted to talk. I know that the, what we'll be talking about is a little bit different from what the flyer said, um, but I hope you guys kind of bear with us, and I hope you enjoy it and that we um, get some good questions at the end. So what I'll be talking to you guys about is kind of taking it back in time to show you, to talk a little bit about what being a mom was, uh, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and what moms are going through now and how things have changed a lot. Um, so hopefully by the end of the presentation, you can get a little idea of what's different, what they're going through versus what you may have gone through as a new parent and how to best help them um, navigate those waters of new mommyhood, which can be pretty confusing. Um, and if you guys have questions, please write them down. I'll be happy to answer anything that you have at the end. Um, so first thing, maternity fashions. Things have changed so much over the years um, back in the days. And I guess the reason I go with, with these kinds of things is because you know, I'm turning 40 this year, which is um, a staggering thought for me. Um, and my mom was actually 38 when she had me. And back in those days, um, 1980, um, she was told immediately that, you know, you're 38, you shouldn't be having a baby. Um, you need to just have an abortion because this child is going to be severely mentally and physically handicapped and you it's just going to be too much of a burden. You shouldn't even bother. Never mind, you know, this, this before really like scans and testing and all that kind of stuff went on. And she was like, no, I'll take what the Lord gives me and we'll make the best of it. And um, and so, so she did. She had me and I grew up with her. Um, and my siblings were 12, 17, and 18 years older than me. So they were pretty much adults as it was. And so she had seen parenting from starting in the early 1960s all the way through the 80s. And so I got a lot of, a lot of gleaning stuff uh, from her. She shared her experiences with me as, as it changed just with her. And then going to what I've changed, what, what happened with my pregnancies, and what we're seeing now with our new moms that come into the hospital. So back in the day, you know, maternity fashions, they tried to hide everything. Um, you had these big old tent-like moo-moos um, and big, big, big shirts and, you know, just trying to really hide the fact uh, back in the day you couldn't even say pregnant on TV. Lucille Ball was one of the first, was the first um, actress actually to, sh to appear on TV um, pregnant and they couldn't even say the word. I mean, she and Desi Arnaz couldn't even sleep in the same bed on the TV show. So um, things have changed quite a bit. You guys all know what TV shows look like now. And um, fashions now accentuate the bump. Moms are revered for the beauty that they have during pregnancy. Um, you see so many beautiful pregnancy shoot photo shoots. Um, and just seeing all those changes and how, you know, the, as, as it should be, pregnancy should re be revered because it is a miracle each time a baby is created um, and from the moment of conception till the time that we, we, we go, it's just an amazing um, a miracle to have that kind of life. Um, Opinions on smoking, though that's something that's had a major drastic change. Um, back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, um, smoking was normal, and actually a lot of doctors promoted smoking. They have several ads uh, for Winston and Camel and uh, Marlboro and all those cigarettes where they're saying, you know, every doctor in private practice was asked, um, what cigarette do you smoke? And more, more doctors smoke Camel than any other cigarette. And doctors actually smoked in the office, and they thought it was good for asthma and all those kinds of things. 
Now we know a little bit differently. We know that when mom smokes, that baby smokes too. And every time mom takes a drag of that cigarette, every single blood vessel in her body and her baby's body constricts and it, lo- it limits the amount of nutrients that get to the baby. And it can lead to more um, low birth weights, um, more problems with the baby's lungs and heart. Um, Babies have harder times gaining weight, and not to mention if mom is smoking around their children, even if she is smoking in the bathroom and not maybe in the same room, or if she smokes in the car, even dad, not just mom, but if anybody smokes anywhere in the house or in the car, that smell that clings to the fabric and the upholstery is very damaging for baby. It's called third-hand smoke, and it's just as dangerous as secondhand smoke. Um, So if somebody in the family has to smoke, they really should be advised to smoke outside, at least 25 feet away from the door, not right in the door where the the smoke gets blown in. And any time they come around baby, they need to change their clothes. They need to wash their hands before picking up baby. Because smoking has uh, huge effects on not, you know, mom and dad, whoever's doing the smoking, but baby can have more problems with asthma, other respiratory issues, um, just decreasing the immune system and it makes it harder. Now, if a mom does smoke, um, it is not a contraindication if she wants to breastfeed. It's with because the numerous benefits of breastfeeding have been shown to greatly benefit the baby even if mom is smoking. So if mom is smoking, it is not rec- recommended that she formula feed because the immune benefits of breastfeeding can actually help that baby more so. <clears throat> So car seats, those these have changed tremendously. Just in the last couple of years, we've seen huge changes, but not to mention way back in the 1960s, it was basically a bucket with a bar on it. Um, and for most pa- parents, mom held baby in her arms in the car, in the, car um, in the front seat without seat belts. And I know for me, a lot of the times, um, I never got in a car seat unless we were going on a long trip. And mom's arm was my car seat <laughs> whenever she hit on the brakes. I'm sure a lot of you remember is stomping on the brakes and mom's arm comes out, goes across baby to keep um, our young child to keep them from hitting the dashboard. Um, and so things have changed quite a bit. Um, now the new recommendations are that babies have to be in rear-facing car seats, and it has to be a five-point harness that holds them in snugly, and um, they need to remain um rear-facing until the baby is at least two years of age, um, preferably longer if the car seat will hold them. Um, and then the child, after moving out of that um, rear-facing car seat, has to be still in the five-point harness um, until they are at least 40 pounds and at least four years old. Um, at that point, they have to move into a booster seat until they're at least 80 pounds and four foot nine inches tall. A lot of people um, make the mistake of moving a child into a regular car seat um, a little too early just because, you know, baby's, baby thinks he's getting big and doesn't want to sit in the booster seat, that kind of thing. But that can have some major, major, major um, health it can really injure your baby if you get into um, a car a car accident um, with the baby not restrained properly. And not just baby, we're talking about the bigger kids. Um, my kids are actually 10, my older kids are 10 and 12 and um, are just getting out of their booster seats um, because they're just hitting four foot nine. And my, my son is a little bit on the short side. He's my 12-year-old and my 10-year-old daughter is 
taller, so they're right at the same size, and they both came out of their booster seats at the same time. And, I mean, they were chomping at the bit, but it was like, sorry, guys, you're going to stay in your seat. And when we had friends come over, it's like they either bring their booster seat or they use one of ours or they don't ride. I'm sorry. That's that's just I'm not going to be responsible for a child getting hurt in my car because they weren't properly restrained. And your little ones uh, with the car seats. Another thing, too, we see a lot of here at the hospital is car seats come in every shape and size and color and all these kinds of things. Um, And honestly, the car seats have to be approved by uh, DOTD before they can even be sold. So make sure your car seat is new. It needs to be up to date. They do have expiration dates on them. So flip them over, look at it. It'll tell you when it's manufactured and when the expiration date is. And the reason for that is is that car seats sit outside in the heat, in the car, and that wears plastics down. I'm sure you've had other things sit in your car and note that it becomes brittle over time. So car seats do have an expiration. You never want to buy them from a... um, a garage sale, uh, because you don't know the history of that seat. Uh, You don't know if it was in a crash, which it should be replaced immediately after a crash. Um, And you never want to add anything to the car seat that didn't come with it from the manufacturer. So that means no fancy um, padding to cover the straps, no fancy um, liners to go inside, no headrests, none of that kind of thing. If it comes with the car seat, that's fine, but you don't want to add anything in that's aftermarket because because those can affect the performance of the car seat and it can actually severely injure your baby um, in the event of a crash. So um, it's always a good idea to check with Louisiana State Police, um, the Child Passenger Safety Task Force, um, and get your car seat checked. There are multiple locations all around the area that will do it, and this is always a free service. So anytime you change car seats, have a new baby, um, any of that kind of thing, always get them checked. Um, Make the appointment um, or drop by at one of their stations that they have over the weekends, um, have that car seat checked. I just can't can't say that enough. Make sure your baby is is installed correctly um, because you can can really, really make a big, big difference in your baby's life and keeping them safe by making sure that they're strapped in correctly. And and also these things that I'm mentioning are now law. As of next last year, Louisiana has really um, come a long way with imp- improving those laws. So um, in my presentation, I have a little picture. Um, who remembers those old? swings for babies those big crank had a big old crank at the top uh, where you had to wind it up and then it would swing and they'd swing 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 fast 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 and then it would slow down and you have to go crank it up again babies loved swings it was it was it was the cure-all for just about anything for colic restless babies all those kinds of things um cool thing is swings haven't changed a whole lot they're still a great benefit for moms um, and babies, keeping them happy, uh, settling them down when mom needs to free up her hands. They've just gotten a little fancier. We don't usually have to crank them anymore. Um, they usually have a little electrical out, electric outlet that keeps them going. Um, the last one I had for my last baby would swing, and then the whole top of it would pull out um, as a little bouncy seat that I could move around the house, which was kind of cool. Um, but, I mean, same concept, all that kind of thing. They just, they just love them. So those are um, handy little things to have and pass down to others that you know that have new babies. Um, great ways for getting around town with your baby. A long time ago, we had the umbrella strollers, and they're still in existence. And I'm sure many of us have lovely pinches and scars on our fingers and our arms and legs from where those miserable things folded up and got us um, 
and it was dangerous for some of the babies as well uh, because that sometimes they would fold up unexpectedly. Now, of course, strollers have gotten really fancy, and you can get those big old things that will hold the car seat and get all that going. But honestly, I found the best way for toting my kids around that you didn't have to haul all that luggage and all that kind of stuff was uh, getting a carrier. And this is something that I recommend to moms all the time. I used a ring sling for my baby, my last baby, um, because she was number three. And um, I only had two arms with two other children at home. And I was like, okay, I'm out of arms. I'm, I need some kind of way to hold her and not let my other two run into the street. So um, went into a little store in Lafayette called Lafayette Moms and Babies, a little boutique. And um, I'm like, I am not good at all these wraps with the big old long material. It's like, I need the one for dummies. So she gave me the one that had two rings on it. And we used that until baby was probably about five or six months. And I mean, it was a lifesaver uh, when she got too big for that one we moved her into um, one of the ergonomic carriers and she sat in that thing for about three years and she she just absolutely loved it she loved being snuggled up against me she was always quiet and calm whenever she was hanging out there and I loved having her with me I could bend down and kiss her head anytime I wanted to and I knew she was snug and not to mention she couldn't drag everything off the off the counters at Walmart and Super One and all those kinds of things when we were grocery shopping and I didn't have to chase her either. Um, so, But whenever using carriers, there is a way to do it safely and, and a not-so-safe way. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you always want to make sure baby is facing towards mom or the parent, whoever's carrying them, or grandma. She likes to wear them as well. Um, and you want to make sure that the material comes down over their little bottoms and comes all the way out to their knees. You don't want one that makes them face forward and lets the knees hang down. You want something that keeps the knees at a 90-degree angle um, to the hips because anything that goes in between the legs, including jumpers and bouncy seats and um, any of those kinds of things can cause more hip dysplasia. So you don't want to put an extra pressure on the insides of the hips. Um, so when you're wearing your baby or putting them in any kind of container like the jumpies or um, stroller or walkers, things like that, um, you don't want to leave them in there for very long because that can put pressure on the insides of their legs. And carriers are, are amazingly helpful for um, keeping those babies happy and quiet whenever you're going. You have to be out and about town. And not to mention now with all the sickness and everything going around, if mom has to get out with baby for a doctor's appointment or whatnot, um, a lot of times you they have an extra piece of fabric that can pull up over the baby's head so that way mom's the only one who can see baby and no one else can get um, have access to baby. So speaking of putting babies and things that they can move around, um, who remembers um, walkers for babies with wheels on the bottom? You plunk baby in there and they, when they're barely learning to sit up and they just kind of put their feet on the ground and whoosh, they're going across the kitchen. Um, and babies usually loved these things. But unfortunately, parents and grandparents should know that walker use can actually delay motor, motor development and it can delay mental development even more. And not to mention walker use is dangerous. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So 
1994, the Consumer Product Safety Commission actually declared that baby walkers were responsible for more injuries than any other children's product. The types of injuries included head injuries, broken bones, broken teeth, burns, entrapment of fingers, and even amputations or death. Um, today's walkers are safer, but they're actually still very hazardous. And Canada actually banned baby walkers in 2004. And possession of a baby walker in Canada can actually lead to fines of up to $100,000 or six months in jail. Isn't that kind of crazy? Um, so, and not to mention also with, when we're talking about development. In the second half of the first year, healthy babies develop a strong urge to move across the floor. At first, this is a struggle for them as they work their arms and legs, stretching, rolling, scooting, or crawling. They find lots of delight in accomplishment as they achieve their goal as a, of a toy that's put out of reach. Later, the focus of their work will turn to pulling themselves upright. Babies who use a walker skip some of this developmental journey. With their toes in an unnatural position as they're reaching to the, for the floor hanging there, they glide across the floor with ease and they move upright before their time. So what happens is <clears throat> babies who use walkers actually learn to crawl, stand, and walk later than they would have otherwise and continue to show delayed motor development for months after they have learned to walk. And this delay seems to be a little bit more than three days for every 24 hours of total walker use. So that's pretty significant. Um, so, and some of the biggest delays that they see, and it's a big surprise for a lot of parents, is that they actually have delays in mental development and actually lower scores on mental, mental development testing, which can still be present 10 months after initial walker use. So something that's actually better would be more like a stationary activity center or a walk-behind aid, one of those little things that pops up that baby just basically holds on to, and it just kind of helps them stabilize a little bit as they're learning to walk, where baby's feet are on the floor and they're still crawling and moving around and starting and doing all those normal things that they need to do um, would be a better um, option for baby. So let's talk a little bit about colic remedies. I know when I was a baby and my brothers and sisters were babies, um, mom used a, a solution called paragoric. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. Um, and she always said it was wonderful. You put a couple of drops of that on your pacifier and you were out. And you were just the best baby and all those kinds of things. And as I was putting this presentation together, um, I was like, well, let me look this up and see what's, what's so different with it. Um, and because now we use a lot of essential oils, um, and one of those that we use is called Digest Zen. And whenever I let my mom smell the Digest Zen, she was like, wow, that really smells like paragoric. I'm like, oh, really? <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so I had to look it up. And I went and looked, and sure enough, uh, one of the um, ingredients in paragoric is anise, um, anise seed extract. And that's one of the main ingredients in Digest Zen, which is known for helping um, with tummy issues. But I also looked at the other ingredients in paragoric and um, listen to this. Um, alcohol, 46.5%. Um, opium, 1.9 grains per fluid ounce. So paragoric, no wonder they slept well. They had alcohol and opium in their systems whenever they took that. So of course they slept well and um, it calmed their, their tummies down. It knocked them out um, and we had some issues with that. And actually paragoric was taken off the market because of that use um, and for a while was actually only used for babies who were born drug addicted and needed help with weaning off of that kind of thing, but um, it's not even used for that anymore. 
So instead, um, better um, suggestions for colic, number one would be skin-to-skin, putting baby skin-to-skin against um, parent or grandparents. Tell me that warmth, um, that settling can actually help improve digestion and keeps them settled, and um, it just hits, it hits the reset button on your baby. Um, something that we use in our family is uh, doTERRA essential oils, uh, Digest Zen or Tamer, um, or two um, oils that we use, and if you use them on babies, they just need to be diluted very, very well. Uh, with something like uh, fractionated coconut oil so that way um, it's very gentle and very mild for baby and can help them settle down. Um, So you definitely don't want to use any kind of alcohol or opium or um, any of those kinds of issues. But as always, check with your pediatrician uh, before giving your baby any kind of uh, supplements or anything for that kind of issue. So something that we've seen a lot of changes in also is pain-free childbirth. So prior to the 1970s, for women to experience pain relief during labor, mothers were given a combination of morphine to reduce their inhibitions, scopolamine for memory loss, and this was called twilight sleep. Because of these drugs crossing the placenta, babies are born drugged and not breathing. So this is where the practice of holding baby upside down by his feet and slapping it on the bottom, that's where that began because that was an attempt to revive a comatose baby. Mothers also often remain drugged and sleepy for hours or days after birth. So, and back then, that's, that was one of the reasons that moms were separated from their babies for a long time. So, in response to these hospital routines, women were protesting that such practices were not necessary or beneficial, and they began seeking other, more satisfying ways to give birth. So, this began the natural child, childbirth movement and the movement toward family-centered maternity care. The 1960s was a time when national and international organizations were founded to make these changes. Women and men wrote and read books describing more humane, satisfying ways to give birth to a baby. Mothers attended childbirth preparation classes. They involved their loved ones in their support and care. They breastfed their babies and spent more time during their hospital stay caring for their babies. So instead of being gorked out away from your baby, women started learning how to care for their babies before they went home. Niles Bergman was a physician, or is a physician and researcher who's now working, working in South Africa, and he's shown that kangaroo mother care or skin-to-skin contact is very beneficial in stabilizing and promoting the health of premature babies. And he also pulls together work by other researchers to demonstrate its value for all babies. He explains, a newborn's brain development depends on positive sensory stimulation. At birth, the sensations that tell the brain, I am safe, are the mother's smell, her movements, and skin-to-skin contact. Also, her voice, and, but it's not always there. When the brain does not get those sensations, it says, I am not safe. So babies have to have mother to be able to feel safe. When you separate them, baby goes into a self-defense program. They keep eating, breathing, and digesting, but the brain development is actually on hold. When the baby is in skin-to-skin contact with his mother, a natural process unfolds. It stimulates a specific part of the newborn brain so that two things happen. The baby will move to the breast, self-attach, and feed. And secondly, the baby will open his eyes and gaze at his mother, he says. The first step, which is getting milk, allows the baby to continue developing physically while the second step ensures emotional and social development. The mother's body is the baby's natural habitat, which is the place where development happens. So now we see that instead of bringing baby to a warmer immediately after birth, 
Instead, healthy babies go immediately skin to skin on mom. And what does that mean? That means baby is unclothed, there's nothing on baby, we dry them off quickly, and then baby is put on mom's chest under her gown, under her blankets, and then both are covered with blankets to keep them warm. And baby stays there for at least an hour or until baby has a successful feeding at the breast. If mother is choosing not to breastfeed, then we keep the baby there for at least an hour hour, or as long as mom and baby want to stay there to love and bond with each other. So one of my missions um, in seeing this, as I was going through my uh, lactation consultant training, I got to see skin-to-skin, which I always thought was just for uh, premature babies. And when I realized how awesome it was for Reg, you know, term newborn babies with no complications. I was kind of sad. I was like, I didn't get to do that with my baby. Um, my baby's first photos were of them screaming and crying on the warmer. And how many of you have seen that? People post pictures on Facebook, Facebook and Instagram of um, a brand new baby, and you see them. They're stressed. Their mouth is open wide. They're, they're arched back. Their hands are clenched, and they're just crying, 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 crying. And honestly, those pictures just break my heart. Um, one of my missions with this is to change the face of the first baby picture to include where baby is safe on mom's chest, dad is there at mom's side, or grandmother, whoever her support system is, they're right there at her side. Mom is happy, she's tired, she's relieved, she's absolutely beautiful. And that gorgeous baby is is laying right there on mom, looking up at mom, just peaceful. That should be the introduction to the world for that baby. Um, And of course, any family members always need to ask permission of the parents before they post those kinds of pictures. Uh, but definitely make sure that somebody does snap that picture for mom because she's going to want that later on. Um, and of course, make sure you send it to her and let her post it whenever it's her time when she's ready for that. So um, you want to make sure that baby is using his energy um, in glucose stores for good things instead of burning them all up, crying in search of his mom. Um, So transition is best done when skin-to-skin with mom, when baby is in habitat, and they have a much, much better chance of transitioning and developing normally. Excuse me. Um, So talking about where we keep babies. This was kind of one of the difficult parts um, when we were transitioning with baby-friendly designation uh, because a lot of people thought that we had closed our nursery and that babies wouldn't be cared for. Um, So now what we do is babies actually remain in the room with mom uh, because for a long time, routine maternity care was designed to improve safety and it became so rigid. Um, Hospitals feared infection so much, which was a major killer of mothers and babies, and it led to practices such as taking away all of a woman's personal belongings when she entered the hospital, shaving all of her pubic hair, and giving her these large, uncomfortable enemas, prohibiting fathers and other loved ones from entering the maternity area. We kept the babies in the nursery, we kept them away from their mothers, and we handled them as little as possible. And at the time, bottle feeding was believed to be more sanitary and superior in almost every way to breastfeeding because we could control it. We could sterilize it. We thought that, you know, the breast was dirty. Mom was dirty. So this was part of the reason that back in the 1950s and 60s, why babies and moms were separated. So in response to these routines, women were protesting that such practices were not necessary and um, fortunately concerned and enlightened professionals started joining them in their quest. 
So this is where a lot of the baby-friendly movement started coming from. Um, so in baby-friendly de designated facilities like Opelousas General, babies room in with mom. So they go skin to skin immediately, and they stay with mom until mom goes home. Um, and family is encouraged to participate in all of baby's care. Um, and as part of that rooming in process, all exams and routine procedures are done at mom's bedside so that way she can ask questions and she can participate um, and make sure that she knows she's comfortable and she's confident with caring for her baby when she goes home. Because if we care for her baby in the nursery, number one, baby's stressed. Um, baby is not bonding with anyone uh, because there's so many different caretakers in the nursery. And then when we hand baby to mom at discharge, she hasn't done any of the care. So especially if it's her first baby, She's like, I don't know what to do, and she gets, she starts doubting herself, and things are so much harder. So um, we do do that, and we actually find this, and the research supports this, is that moms actually get more rest when baby stays in the nursery. Um, and I usually equate this to a daycare center. If anyone has ever walked through a busy daycare center and you pass through the baby room, do you hear quiet and lullabies and everybody sleeping peacefully? Not likely. You usually hear some kind of baby crying, um, usually at different pitches. Um, and who's getting the attention? The loudest one. So kind of the same thing for nursery. We have so many babies to care for that we're not going to pay attention to the baby who is giving us the first early cues, which are smacking and wiggling and sticking his tongue out. We're going to hear the one that's crying the loudest, and then bring him to mom when he's in that um, disorganized and upset state. Whereas when baby is with mom, uh, one of our nurses likes to describe it as um, an imaginary tether where mom and baby are still connected. And anytime baby starts wiggling and moving, starts sticking his tongue out and acting like he's hungry, mom immediately knows somewhere in her subconscious. And she starts waking up. She picks up baby, feeds her baby, and goes back to sleep. And whereas with in the nursery, by the time we notice baby's done, baby's ready to feed, they're crying and they're disorganized and we have to calm them down. We hand them to mom. She's upset because she didn't she doesn't know what's going on. She was sound asleep and didn't know or she was sitting up worrying about her baby if somebody was taking care of her baby, right? And then she has to calm baby down when and they don't like to nurse very well whenever they're upset. So when babies stay with moms, they are much happier, they take in more milk, they gain weight better, and breastfeeding gets off to a better start, and mom is more confident. And Ashley studies have actually shown that um, rates of abuse, neglect, and abandonment actually go down when moms um, room in with their babies. So and as grandparents, you can play a pivotal role in this. Um, Moms are often elated and exhausted all at the same time, and well-meaning family members are anxious to see this new addition to the family. So moms often don't want to hurt their feelings, and so they won't normally ask others to leave so they can rest or breastfeed. So grandparents kind of be, be the guardian of that mom. Let her have some time uh, to be with her baby. We do have cuddle time here at the hospital where from 2 to 4 p.m. Um, we turn the lights down and um, we try to set that, side of that time aside so moms and her caregivers can um, have a little bit of quiet time with baby because babies love to stay up all night long and feed all night long and just party. Um, and that can really, really exhaust mom and make things a lot harder. So grandparents can help with that and, um, and help her get some rest and help those family members to do some other, other more constructive things like maybe cooking them a meal or um, 
planning to come by and help do a, a load of laundry or pass them up or something like that whenever um, so mom can get some rest and take care of her baby. So whenever it's time for, for mom to feed the baby or when she needs to rest, ask visiting family to take a walk with you or join you in a coffee break in the waiting room or do- downstairs in the lobby. Um, Maybe set up a queue between you and your daughter or son so that way you know when mom needs a break. This quiet time can make a huge difference for your new family. So those are some ways to um, understand what's going on and how to help um, that newest family. Shonda, how are we doing on time? We're doing good on time. We have maybe about five, ten more minutes. Okay, well, let me start wrapping up then. So um, way back in the day, we had babies sleeping on their tummy because we thought that that was the safest thing to do. And actually what we found is that the safest way for babies um, to sleep is on their backs because when babies are on their tummies, it can actually cut off um, the the trachea, and it can cause more issues with SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. So the Back to Sleep campaign was launched and that all healthy infants be placed on their back or their side to sleep to reduce the risk of SIDS. It used to be side, but now we know that back is the safest um, place for babies to sleep. And the newest part of that, too, is um, Academy of Pediatrics is recommending that um, babies not be wrapped up in a bunch of blankets or have hats on that can um, get loose and come over baby's face. So the newer recommendations are for um, creating a safe sleep environment. And these recommendations include placing the baby on his or her back on a firm sleep surface such as a crib or bassinet with a tight fitting sheet. And that's it. No, no other, nothing else in the crib. You want to use soft, avoid using soft bedding including crib bumpers, blankets, or pillows, and soft toys. The crib should be bare, just the fitted sheet. Um, babies should share a bedroom with their parents, but not the same sleep- sleeping surface, preferably until the baby turns one, but at least for the first six month- months. Room sharing, where the baby is in the room, but not in the bed, that can actually decrease the risk of SIDS by as much as 50%. Um, avoid baby's exposure to smoke, alcohol, and illicit drugs. Make sure nothing is covering the baby's head. Dress your baby in light sleep clothing and do not use a blanket. Um, if you need, if baby needs something a little bit more than just like a footy sleeper with arms on it, um, sleep blankets, um, the little zipper blankets that babies zip up into, or the swaddlers with the... Um, the Velcro, something that baby won't be able to get loose in, um, is recommended. Skin-to-skin care is recommended regardless of feeding or delivery method, and it's recommended immediately following birth for at least an hour um, as soon as mother is medically stable and awake. Breastfeeding is also recommended as adding protection against SIDS. After feeding, the AAP encourages parents to move the baby to his or her separate sleeping space, preferably a crib or bassinet in the parent's bedroom. If you're feeding your baby and you think that there's even the slightest possibility that you may fall asleep, feed your baby on your bed rather than a sofa or a cushioned chair. Um, so that way, as soon as you do wake, if you do fall asleep, as soon as you wake up, move your baby over to, their, to his or her own bed. There should be no pillows, sheets, blankets, or any other items that could obstruct the infant's breathing or cause overheating. So if mom, when mom is feeding at night, it's not safe for her to move to another chair where she might fall asleep. Um, it's actually safer for her to nurse in the bed, moving all of the fluffy surfaces away. So that way, if she falls asleep, baby falls onto a flat surface um, instead of getting stuck in the cracks of a chair. Um, the most 
common time for SIDS is between the ages of one and four months, but newer evidence shows that soft bedding continues to pose hazards to babies who are four months and older. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of and something that we've all been used to is um, introducing purees to babies at six months, um, or sometimes introducing them even earlier. Newer research is show, showing that babies actually do better when you wait until baby is at least six months and sitting up well without support before introducing any kind of solids. Babies need only breast milk. Um, if mom's unable to breastfeed, then only formula as it's prepared according to the package directions um, until baby is at least six months old. And then at that time, uh, babies can start on some solid foods. Um, and these solids should be on a spoon, not in a bottle or one of those um, syringe-type feeders. Um, baby sh the, par the purpose of introducing solid foods is for baby to learn to manipulate a bolus of food through the mouth and swallow it without choking. Uh, one of the newer trends is now for uh, something called baby led weaning, which is basically, you can Google it, um, really great uh, practice. We did it with our last, um, where you're giving baby basically what you're eating at the table instead of all the purees um, and putting it on the tray putting them in their high chair and letting them go at it. And if it makes it to the mouth, great. If it doesn't, that's okay because baby is still nursing um, or getting their bottles just as often. And that's what's providing their nutrition, not the solids. Um, <clears throat> so babies should wait. Um, and remember the, remember the mantra, solids before one are just for fun. So you're not looking for it to replace their milk feedings. It's simply to help them manipulate that bolus of food through the mouth. Um, another thing that has changed is we don't give babies water. Babies do not need extra hydration that water would provide. Um, all of the baby's hydration needs are met through the breast milk or formula, even in the hot and the humidity of the summer. So summer's coming up. Um, babies do not need water for any reason. It's not recommended for in, any infants under six months old because even small amounts fill up their tiny bellies and can interfere with their body's ability to absorb the nutrients in their breast milk or their formula. So it's also important to know that diluting formula with extra water can lead to a condition called water intoxication, which can be quite dangerous for babies, causing seizures and even death. Um, so please, 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 if you, if you are using formula with your baby, make sure you read the instructions and mix it exactly according to those instructions. Uh, breast milk, of course, is always the best, but if um, for whatever reason, make sure it's being prepared properly. And um, the truth is babies' kidneys can't actually handle water until they're over six months old. And then at six months old, um, instead of if baby is breastfeeding, um, you can actually introduce them just to a cup. They don't have to go to a bottle if mom doesn't want to or if they're not wanting to take it. Um, so they can actually go to an open cup. And honestly, the best, a lot of the best open cups are um, a medicine cup that comes on the top of a cough syrup bottle or the top of a bottle, what goes on top of the nipple. Those are great ways to start. Um, give them a little bit in um, a little bit of water and do it while they're in the bathtub and let them practice and have fun with that and they'll have a, just a blast. Um, that's a, those are great ways to do that, but wait until they're after six months before you introduce um, water or um, anything like that. And then, of course, breastfeeding and breast pumps have evolved. Uh, back in the 1950s, the first breast pump was invented, and it was a huge, scary-looking kind of thing. Um, and this pump actually stayed around until about the 1980s. And of course, there were other little... Um, horn type 
breast pumps and things like that, but really weren't that effective. This pump in 1956, um, which was eventually purchased by Amita, was probably the first really um, effective breast pump that came about. Um, and then, of course, they've continued to evolve, making them more efficient, safer materials, quieter motors, much easier to carry around, which allows more working moms to continue providing their breast milk even while they're being away from their baby. Um, also know that mothers are protected by federal law to continue providing their breast milk under the Wage and Hour Division's Break Time for Nursing Mothers Act of 2010. Um, this law actually requires employers to provide reasonable break time for an employee to express breast milk for her nursing child for up to a year after the child's birth each time she has the need to express her milk. These employers are also required to provide a place other than a bathroom that is shielded from view and free from intrusion from coworkers and the public, which can be used by the employee to express her breast milk. So she's protected by law and also um, insurances are providing breast pumps now. This is some breast pumps are indicated as a single use only. Um, so moms really should not be sharing breast pumps for any reason unless it's a hospital grade pump that's designed to have a new kit and go between. Um, but they really should be um, getting their own. Uh, private insurance is paying for them, Medicaid is pay, paying for them, and WIC can provide as well. Um, so have her check with her providers um, to see how she can get a breast pump if she's uh, needing to be separated from her baby for any reason. So, and then breastfeeding promotion. Back in the 1950s and 60s, formula was viewed as being more hygienic and superior, and there were even ads set out that babies would become weak and anemic if they were breastfed for, their, for too long. And moms were told that holding a baby too much would spoil the baby and that babies needed to cry it out to learn how to sleep through the night. And a lot of stuff, has, much has changed during those day, since those days, and we know that these myths couldn't be farther from the truth. So now World Health Organization and American Academy of Pediatrics and other uh, medical associations around the world now recommend that children should be exclusively breastfed, which means they get nothing but breast milk for the first six months, with continued breastfeeding alongside solids until two years old or beyond. Um, and all the promotion everywhere seems to provide support for new mothers and help promote a new normal for infant feeding, which is breastfeeding. Breastfeeding was the norm for centuries. And then in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, um, formula was believed to be superior. And now we're seeing again that breast milk, as it was intended by our bodies, is the best thing for baby. So, and being a grandparent, you play a pivotal role. Um, you have a lot of say in what your daughter or daughter-in-law, your, your grandchild, what they do. So how your attitude towards them and how they're feeding their baby, how they're caring for their baby goes a long way with them. So being supportive, learning what's, what she wants to do. Ask her about her choices. What is it that she plans to do for her baby? How does she plan to parent? How does she plan to feed? Um, and learn as much about it as you can. If it's something new to you that you're not familiar with, ask questions. You guys can call me here at the hospital. Um, come with her to classes um, whenever we get to have them again. Um, we just had to cancel June for right now, uh, but we do have online options that are available. Um, and we have them um, there geared towards whoever the caregiver is as well as the new mom. 
Um, so realize that new mothers biologically have a fierce protective instinct and have a hard time handling their, handing their little one over even though she knows you successfully raised your own children. Know that she will likely watch like a hawk the first few times you change a diaper or burp her baby. You may also disagree with how she does things with the baby. There will be a new family dynamic, but also know that time, practice, and exhaustion will also relax her guard, at least around you. So listen to your adult children. Um, tensions can be bound to arise as new parents and new grandparents adjust not only to the presence of a baby, but also to the changing family order in which the adult children suddenly hold all the cards. A lot depends on how the message is conveyed, and that works both ways. So some, oh, some women say, I'd rather have my mother say out loud what she's thinking than grumble under her breath. Taking things over allows me to say, I hear you, but I don't have to agree. So no matter how many kids you raised or how they turned out, your adult child and his or her partner are now in charge of the child rearing. Be cautious about offering opinions or advice unless asked directly. Even then, tread lightly and express yourself gently. Let them experiment. Not every decision they make will, will stick. Allow them to grow in their roles as parents. Um, try to follow their rules if you can as well. You're used to being the one in charge, but it's your child's turn now. Um, this role reversal actually can be refreshing for you. Um, with authority comes responsibility. So now it's your turn to do what you're told and not worry about whether it's the best way or not. If your grandchild has a routine for naps and meals, make sure you maintain it, even if it means cutting out an outing. If every time they go out with Grandma and he comes home exhausted and cranky, those outings are not going to happen as often. And if the parents say no solid food yet and to keep the TV and phones off when the baby's awake, please respect their wishes. Um, this, this same goes about their house rules and things that they like to do in their home, such as recycling and don't throw in your water bottles in the trash can. Um, even if the parents are always gracious, aren't always gracious when explaining their do's and don'ts or get snippy with you over something minor, try to keep your cool. Sleep deprivation and the stresses of new parenthood are probably to blame. Try to communicate and be flexible. Moms, new moms are having a hard time getting comfortable with being a new mom, and sometimes they'll hold off before letting anyone get close. Make the effort. Talk openly with her and the new dad on how you want to be present. Talk to them about what you want to be called, how you want to be present, what you want to do to be, be a grandparent to your new, new grandbaby. A lot of good for you all can be gotten from open communication. And keep in mind that some new parents are reluctant to ask grandparents to help, so you may get better results if you just jump in and do what's needed, like filling the dishwasher or making a sandwich. But if you detect resentment afterward, don't do it again. Not everyone appreciates unsolicited help. It's worth asking ahead of time. Your suggestions may be met with relief, or they may say it's not necessary, but you've put the option out there. I know when we had our babies, I felt like this was my child. I created them. I had to deal with it. So I would try to limit how much time I asked my mom or my husband's mom um, to watch the babies. And I never really thought much of it. I was like, okay, if I'm asking her to take them, I'm kind of burdening her, so I'm going to try not to do that as, my, any, as more than I had to. And then we were at a, um, a family gathering, and she was fussing, like, hmm, I hardly ever get to keep those babies. And I'm like, well, all you have to do is ask. She's like, well, I didn't want to step on any toes. I'm like, well, I didn't want to step on any toes either. So we didn't communicate with each other that, you know, and I didn't realize she wanted more time with them. And I'm like, you can come and get them anytime. <laughs> so put it out there and talk with them about uh, what works for you. 
So, and be sure to pair each piece of advice that you do give with a compliment. Forgive them for being overwhelmed and self-absorbed. It's natural. You were probably the same way with your parents as well. And support her. No matter the challenges your daughter or son may face, be their biggest supporter and advocate. If breastfeeding is what she wants to do, don't do anything that communicates you aren't 100% on board with her decision. Um, A grandparent's unfavorable opinion of breastfeeding could actually decrease a mother's likeliness to breastfeed by as much as 70%. You play a big role for her. Um, So you have a wonderful and unique role to help her succeed. Be the person she looks back to and says, my mom, my mother-in-law believed in me and she encouraged me and that's why I persevered through those early days. So be that wonderful person for her. I know you guys can do it. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us anytime. Thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you, Ms. Lauren Davi. Thank you to Amy Rosette and thank you to Opelousa's General Health System for your presentation today. Very good information. And I know that even though the world is going crazy outside, we tend to forget that that there is still certain things that are happening. So babies are still being born. New moms are still having anxiety over whether to breastfeed or not. And so new moms are still needing our support. And what can we as grandparents do to support them? So thank you, ladies, very much.